Hello, and welcome to this alumni edition of Eyes on Earth. I'm Sherry Levesay, your host for this episode. For its 50th anniversary celebration in August, Arrows made a special effort to invite former employees to the events, highlighting their importance to the center with a stage dedicated to sharing their perspectives. This podcast, like the previous one, brings together excerpts from their talks, as well as impromptu interviews. Today, we'll listen as alumni and others talk about the science and technology that made the Eros mission possible. But the podcast also features the worldwide outlook and benefits to society from the era of Earth observation that began with Landsat 1's launch. To begin, we'll listen to a clip from a 2008 interview with Virginia Norwood and John DeNoyer that was shared with the alumni stage audience. Norwood, known as the mother of Landsat for her work on the multispectral scanner that proved to be such a success on Landsat 1, or ERTS 1, died on March 26th this year at the age of 96. John DeNoyer was the first director of the Aeros program, operating from the Washington, D.C. office. He died in 2016. So to propose a scanner for this met with quite a bit of skepticism. And um, we got, as uh, you may know, we had quite a few stages in the, in the scanner itself. Originally, we were going to do a sinusoidal motion and then have to put up with the variability that that entailed. And then we had the sawtooth idea and to simplify that as much as possible, we decided to bang the mirror back and forth so that between bangs, it, the velocity, the angular velocity would be constant and then it would return. And we couldn't use the return at that time for quite a few reasons. So we used the return in, in, intervals for um, uh, calibration calibration um, lamps and later on they got the bright idea of looking at the sun once in orbit so that stabilized the the lamp calibrators and uh, we were able because the detectors were getting better and all of that we were able to eke out the signal noise we needed well we thought that we could probably have a spacecraft that could lift the thematic mapper and then as time grew uh, as the, the spacecraft was looked into more and more uh, they were sharing a lot of other sensors at that time too and so we were limited to 60 pounds and that's for um, the scanner itself and the data processing and so that just meant that we had to go back to a nine inch aperture and then you didn't have enough collection to support any finer um, cuts on the spectral bands. Mm -hmm. the, the users, of course, had been accustomed to something that looked like a spectrometer. It was so fine-grained. And um, so we had to force them into accepting the four pretty broad bands. And when they thought about it more and more, they said, yeah, I think that would be useful to us. Okay. So it was, a, it was a compromise on mass, I'd say, primarily. Okay. It was a compromise on mass for several reasons. The, the first Landsat also carried the return beam Viticons, and the reason right. for carrying that they were a rather heavy item themselves. And there were three of them. And there were three of them. The reason for 
having them was that uh, we were sure they would have geometric fidelity, and we were not sure that the MSS would really have map quality, but uh, geometric fidelity. So, uh, oh, ye a little face. It was, uh, I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> but uh, it turned out that uh, the MSS did have very good geometric fidelity, and also it was it was uh, possible to register pix the different colors in the pixel, different bands in the pixels for each pixel, where you couldn't do that with the return beam Viticon. And the return beam Viticon had radicules on it, and... Uh, registering and and uh, so it was quite a different thing uh, there was a lot of controversy about which was going to be better before the launch and uh, I can't re help but remember Bill Picora at one of the congressional hearings was asked which he preferred the return beam Viticons or the uh, multispectral scanner he sat back and stretched a little bit and said well it's like beer there's good beer and there's better beer, but there's no bad beer. <laughs> I never heard that. <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> Very good. So, uh, Virginia, another aspect and one of the differences between the RBV and the MSS was that RBV was analog and MSS was digital, which was cutting edge. I mean, we hadn't found a digital scanner. Was it? So is it the very nature of the fact that it was a scanner that it needed to be digital, or can you no, speak to that, uh, that aspect? No, it, it was just that that was the easier way to keep the pixels apart. Okay. Uh, and also... And put them back together. Again. And put them back. The International Remote Sensing Workshops introduced a worldwide audience to the value of Landsat imagery. Ron Beck, who worked in communications for Eros for decades, shares a few stories of those training sessions, both in South Dakota and abroad. Probably the best time I had professionally was working in the international program. We set up international training. Watkins and Landis set it up, and, and Don Lauer and Gene Thorley, and we would offer twice a year training courses for the international scientists. They would come from other countries, the other countries paid their tuition, paid their expenses, and they were here in Sioux Falls for about a month. That was an important part. We did training for uh, roughly 850 scientists from around from a, over 100 countries. So we spread the word about the value of remote sensing, and that proved to be critical. Uh, mostly satellite data, because the foreign scientists typically didn't have access to aerial photography even in their own countries. So this was important that we we preach Earth's or Landsat data to them, and we'd spend a week going over the principles and applications and exercises and so on in the classroom. And that was, that was important that we do that. Workshops in Sioux Falls included a weekly field trip because it was our intention and the scientists and the educators, two of whom are here, Dr. Drager and Don Orr, said, we're not going to just teach in the classroom. We're going to go out and field check things because that's what scientists do. South Dakota was a perfect test case because eastern South Dakota glaciated deposits. Western South Dakota deposits from ancient seabeds. And then the Black Hills 
and the Badlands, near arid environment in the Badlands, and then the mountainous region of the Black Hills. We could touch on four major geologic structures in our training, and that worked well for the students. We had volunteers in the community who would host dinners for the international students so they could learn more about other countries, and the other countries could learn more about life in Sioux Falls. And as a byproduct, a large portion of the Sioux Falls community learned more about what we do out here. The real gold mine, though, in my mind, was what we did in African states and are still doing in African states, where we applied the technology to various resource management problems in the African countries. And, and Don Moore and Gray Tappan led the charge on that one. Why do this? Teach people to independently protect their natural resources. And that, that was our objective. Recently, they've done uh, land cover studies, locust control studies, uh, the expansion of the Sahel region. What was significant about the international training, in my mind, was we brought the attention of Landsat to the global science community and the value of global Earth observations. Instead of an isolated training program out of Sioux Falls, we expanded it to a global system, and many countries have their own satellites up subsequently to that to doing exactly the same thing we're doing. Later, in an interview standing outside in the wind, Beck gave more detail about a particularly eventful training trip abroad, a visit to Iran in 1978. The Iranians took, took us out for dinner and they said, at the end of it, they said, Ron, where, where do you want to go? And I said, I don't want to go to the Hilton Hotel. I want to go to a, a, a Iranian restaurant. Okay. And they said, the place to go. And they took us to a place where in a corner there was a guy weaving rugs, which were very important to Iran's economy. Had a nice dinner. Fabulous, strictly Iranian food. Or and I got back to the hotel. Next morning, we were going to fly out to Greece, meet our wives in Athens. I picked up the Iranian newspaper. That restaurant had been blown up. We missed it by 24 hours. Yeah, and, and of course we lost all touch with our counterparts in Iran shortly after that because they, they didn't dare communicate with Americans. In its five decades, Eros has frequently provided imagery and data to help with disaster response. Ron Ristey, who started at Eros in 1973, was disaster response coordinator during part of his 40-plus year career at the center. At the anniversary event, he talked about several of those historic moments, starting with the nuclear disaster in Chernobyl. I remember the very first activity that I got involved with, um, with emergency operations, and it was the Chernobyl nuclear accident. And there was an individual that was here from the CIA, and he happened to be here visiting the center that day, and he got a telephone call. And, of course, he had to go take it in the skiff, and at that time we didn't have a skiff, so he just went into a closed door. And it turned out, found out that the Chernobyl accident, uh, the reactor number four had, um, had uh, blown up. And so it turned out how lucky we were that the Landsat program satellite went over that particular day 
and was able to capture the image of the uh, shutdown that they had, had ter- turned it off. So on that Friday, following Friday, um, Kelland News, L. Watkins contacted Kelland News. They backed up the white truck to the building out here. And of course, the Soviet Union at the time declined that there was any type of a nuclear reactor that it had, had taken, had gone off. But when we were able to show the picture, um, Al Watkins to Dan Rather on, on CBS News at five o'clock in the afternoon, um, it was pretty obvious that, uh, it had all been shut down. Um, SAS project, which was enormous, that happened in the, of course in the spring of 1993, um, and lasted until the fall of 93. And, now, which is you know the which is the main conference room um, that was we brought in. I think there was like seven seven different federal agencies. There's like 20 different people that came from around the country, and they were here during that time period. And we supported uh, the SAS project, which was the Great Flood of the on the Mississippi River, everything south of Sioux City, all the way down through Missouri River and all the way through the the St. Louis um, confines down in the Mississippi River. And uh, I remember taking, I having the opportunity to go down. We got on a, a, a barge in St. Louis and went down river about 20 miles. And we got out and, and um, walked up the bank and they had shovels with them and they were shoveling at least six feet down and we never got to the bottom of the sand that was washed up on the, on the shore of the agricultural land. And so later on, that's next spring, I was flying down to New Orleans for a presentation and we flew over St. Louis and that land that they were, that the farmers were concerned about because the federal government didn't do anything with the, with the sand that, because it stretched for miles. And it's, and so the farmers, what they did is they windrowed and would windrow the, uh, the sand and the sand would be 20 feet high and it would be just as long as you could see as you're flying over. And then they were planting their crops in between in between the windrow of the sand piles that they were, had, had taken up off the land. And that's how they were able to at least be able to plant their crops. And, of course, we all remember what happened in 9-11. I, myself, and a gal by the name of Brenda Jones um, had TVs in our offices and were able to monitor uh, daily activities, what were going on around the world, uh, for military support and also emergency operations. Um, and so on that particular day, um, I usually came into work usually every morning before seven and I turned my TV on. And next thing I know, um, I saw the planes hit, uh, in New York and then it was Washington DC. It didn't take long before RJ, we knew what was going to happen, uh, called and said up to my office and this facility was closed because of the federal facility. Uh, myself and a few other people that were required to stay here. Um, and we were working directly with uh, people in New York. Um, later on that night, um, I got a telephone call from the governor of New York and said he needed a classified database up and running. By tomorrow morning, I need to have imagery that you have and put out there. And then they were collecting imagery um, as well. And so I had to call people in the computer lab and had some of those people come out and uh, we had a classified database up and running uh, the next morning. And uh, that was just one of the many examples that we did in support of the 9-11 activities. Katrina, of course, was a big one. 
we all know what happened there in the science department, particularly for working and supporting, you know, flood inundation maps, how much damage was actually physically done. Uh, we worked with FEMA, we worked with the people in particularly the first responders in New Orleans. Um, people were trying to figure out how they can get rescued from their homes when they were in the upper part of the two story um, and didn't have address, you couldn't contact, no phones. And so what happened was, is that these people indicated that we can put their house number on top of the roof. And so they'd go up and paint it on top of the roof or put letters up there so they knew exactly where you were at. And so we were able to collect with, with uh, drones. We were able to collect with uh, satellite data, different ICODIS and other types of satellite data and be able to pass that information on to first responders, particularly in New Orleans. Of course, we support Afghanistan. You're well aware of that. Um, before our troops went into either Iraq or Afghanistan, we mapped all those countries using land, Landsat data um, and sent those maps off to our troops. We did a lot of support by um, doing uh, activities that were, I guess we had to worry about flooding as they were concerned about the Tigris River. Um, if they blew the dam up, how much water would be concerned for our troops would be in harm's way as we found out with the scientists measuring the amount of water behind the dam, that if they did blow the dam up, the water would only be about six inches deep by the time of where our troops were at. So there was no big concern there. Um, I had an opportunity. Um, I worked a lot with the Marine Intel, uh, supporting their operations, SOCOM. Again, this is all in support of uh, Wayne Rohde and the military operations. But the other thing they were doing, which I did not know of at the time, is that they were putting antennas to receive Landsat data on top of the Humvees. And that was the first time that I'm aware of that outside of Aerostatus Center and other collections of Landsat data, but uh, they were collecting Landsat data in the desert off of the Humvees. Jeff Eidenshank wore many hats during his tenure at Eros, including fire science team coordinator and acting director. His talk on the alumni stage centered on the advanced very high resolution radiometer antenna, which was housed at Eros from the 1980s through 2017. Data from the ABHRR spurred new directions in land cover research. Speak a little bit about the global one kilometer project, the ABHR project. Uh, many of you know. It was near and dear to my heart, so was ABHRR. We uh, started way back in the 80s, way back, and proved the concept in the northern Great Plains and grassland fire danger. Then we moved to the western U.S. Uh, and included forest fire danger, worked with the people at the Missoula Fire Lab a lot. Then we did the whole U.S. We were doing China. We were doing Alaska. Well, we'd do just about any place a three-letter agency would tell us to do it. And I think that might be the June image 1992, which made it the first global image that we ever completed. And it, it kind of, it, well, it demonstrated a couple of things. Uh, internally at Eros, demonstrated our imagination, our dedication, and intellect a lot of things to be able to pull this off throughout the center. To the rest of the community, the remote sensing community, here in the United States, globally, we were able to prove that we could do this. You think about it, it was 
Conterminous U.S. was used for land cover mapping that led to the global land cover mapping, which Jess and Tom Loveland and Brad Reed and Don Olin and other people all did. And look how important that is. And agribusiness and fire, we still do fire every week. You'll look, you can look out on the web and you can see fire danger of the United States. And it all stems from the work here and the work we did with with the conterminous U.S. before that. And so, you know, it pleases me that everything we did, we didn't just do for show, it was used. It was used throughout the world. Dr. Bruce Millett, Principal Investigator for South Dakota View and a professor at South Dakota State University, talked about using Landsat data to research the Prairie Pothole region. Some work with the Prairie Pothole region this is kind of like in the central flyway for all the uh, waterfowl, for example, that we have flying through there. And I have a, a graduate student, Madison, who's sitting in the back there, and she's working on these two projects. And her master's thesis will be on using Landsat, and then uh, we'll be looking at uh, surface water, and we're going to be looking at the trends over time, trying to find. Uh, some hot spots and cold spots out there looking at climate and seeing where certain portions of the prairie pothole region may be increasing in surface water and other areas that may be decreasing. And this was kind of spawned off at, uh, with some of my research that I initially had with uh, Carter Johnson at SDSU and my first limnology class that I had with Steve Chips <laughs> standing there in the back. Dave Greenlee started at the Data Analysis Lab, or DAL, in 1974. His specialty was Geographic Information Systems, or GIS. And like many at Eros, he became involved with many different projects. At the 50th festivities, he focused on how the internet became a platform to share data. You can remember what happened in about 95. We were starting to go through this, you know, try to figure out what Eros was going to do with this thing called the internet. And um, when we, had, and Bill, you can probably relate to the, the notion that we were told that we were only to charge the marginal cost of reproduction. And then the Internet sort of changed everything because it was cheaper for us to hang things out there for people and say, you know, anybody can come and get it. It's, it's open. Um, than it would be for us to make to take a credit card, make a product, you know, and make the custom product. So that changed, for me, that changed a lot of things. Because when I got involved with Katrina or the Yellowstone Fire of 88, you know, we didn't really worry about, we, we still had Don Despain from the Park Service who wanted us to do this and that and this and that. But, we, but when we did that, we just like hung it out there. We just, and, and over the years, it got easier and easier for us to, to put big data sets out there. And one of the things that happened during during uh, uh, the Great Flood, which is a SAS team, is we had like a third of the country that was in our, our basin database. The, the floods were the like the lower half of the Missouri River and the upper uh, two-thirds or so of the Mississippi River. And so the basin, you can imagine what the basin for that is. We built a database, you know, that had about a third of the conterminous U.S. in there. And, and at the same time, we were working with... Uh, some new technology called the Spatial Database Engine. 
and they were trying to figure out how to do raster data with the spatial database engine, and they could do vector. So we just started using SDE, which was Oracle and and some you know, some ArcInfo kind of software. We would hang the kind of stuff we've been working on on smallish kind of things out there as for kind of largest things. In in the and and the, for me the 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 it came together with what we called the seamless server, and the seamless server eventually. Uh, was served up the, the topography, um, in, like the NED and the stuff derived from NED, and uh, and also you know uh, Jay's uh, geo the geo wall and and uh, Glovis the global visualization stuff. People had these good ideas, and and some of them came out like this. They'd say, "Well, we've done a third of the you know area, and and we've got the technology, we've got a little disk, extra disk space." You know, when 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 I go home at night, I'll just turn the job loose and we'll we'll crank out another little hunk of it. And so that's the way some of these databases got built. And Ned was an example of that. So because they had they had funded projects to do some of these things, but mostly it was like ord I would say ordinary people who just had this picked up on this this idea, this dream, and then eventually it just became something big. Daryl Napton, Professor Emeritus of Geography and Geospatial Sciences at South Dakota State University, was a visiting scientist at Eros from 1999 through 2011. His research focus was on land change for the protection of ecosystems. I worked with the Land Cover Trends Project. Looked at uh, 48 conterminous states and land cover and land cover changes from the 1970s through 2000. And as I said, we looked at the whole country, and in terms of favorite memories, uh, one of them is we did field trips in all of the nation, 83 eco-regions, to calibrate if you know what's changed since the last image was taken, and was the last image and the interpretation of it what we were seeing on the ground. Jim Irons and Curtis Woodcock, who collaborated on the Landsat science team, both traveled to Sioux Falls for the anniversary event. I'll let them introduce each other. Well, let me introduce my distinguished uh, colleague here. This is Curtis Woodcock. He, he is a professor at Boston University, and he has served as the leader of the last three right, uh, Landsat science teams. So he has been um, very engaged with um, with Eros uh, for many years. Uh, was a close colleague of Tom Loveland's. Uh, you did a sabbatical here, right? I spent a sabbatical coming to uh, Eros on a regular basis, trying to help start the uh, national uh, LC map, the Land Change Monitoring and Assessment Program. Let me introduce uh, Dr. Jim, James Irons from NASA, um, who served as the Landsat 8 project scientist. And so he helped shepherd Landsat 8 through the process to getting launched. He was also sort of the representative, NASA representative to the science team for uh, the first two terms, at least, of, of the Landsat science team. Eros's um, contributions and impact on our ability to observe and understand how the Earth works has been profound. Um, the biggest 
event in the last 50 years, in my mind, was uh, what I considered a uh, politically brave decision to uh, release the data to no cost uh, to people who requested it, at, at, uh, which was made in 2008, and basically uh, revolutionized uh, the application and, and the use of the data for science and, and um, uh, societal benefits. The example set by Eros was followed by the European Space Agency uh, in their Copernicus program and they weren't intending to provide their data for free until, until Eros set, set that example. So um, yeah, and it was a big, hard, um, you know, somewhat painful uh, change uh, here at, uh, at Eros to go that direction and yet they made it. Uh, and then also Eros has um, kept up and embraced other important parts of the Landsat program like calibration and keeping the system calibrated and advancing uh, the level of data products that are available from Landsat and other systems and all, all of that has been very important. But all of it was made possible by this decision to make the data uh, available at no cost. Eros has provided the gold standard for collecting, archiving, and distributing top quality satellite data that has been the shining light on the hill for the rest of the world. Thank you to all the alumni who offered their perspectives on the five decades of Eros history and people. And thank you to the listeners. Check out our Eros Facebook and Twitter pages to watch for our newest episodes. And you can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. This podcast. This podcast. This podcast. This podcast. This podcast. Is a product of the U.S. Geological Survey, Department of Interior.